About a year and a half ago, I did a long self-retreat, first at the Forest Refuge and then continuing on at home. And sometime in the middle of that retreat, I had a series of sittings when aspects of teachings from several different traditions, they seemed to all fall into place and a kind of unified understanding of what frees the mind. It began with understanding and remembering what is called um, the Buddhist Song of Enlightenment. You know, the words that first came to his mind after his awakening, on the lines that Guy mentioned briefly the other night. The beginning of that famous quotation is, O house builder, you have now been seen, you will build no house again, this house of self. And the verse ends with the two lines, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. So when that came to mind, you know, as I was sitting on retreat, it's like those words just jumped out in neon lights. Realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. It seemed like such a clear and unambiguous statement of what constitutes freedom. The Buddha just became the Buddha. Achieved is the end of craving. Of course, when we hear this or reflect on it, we might feel a little daunted. You know, are we really ready for such a radical departure from our normal way of life? Can we even imagine a mind free of craving? We might resonate more easily, you know, with the words of St. Augustine when he was praying, Oh, dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. <laughs> Maybe that's more to our liking. You know, achieved is the end of craving. But somehow, in the immediacy of the retreat, I understood the Buddha's words in a new way. And this is what really radically transformed my understanding of how we can understand our practice and what we're doing. Rather than understanding these words, the end of craving, only as some far-off goal, you know, as the culmination of the path, well, maybe some year, some lifetime, I'll get to the end of craving. Rather than understanding it like that, or as some meditative state, that we have to attain and then somehow hold on to, I began to understand that the end of craving could be the practice in each moment. And as one expression of this, there's a great Dzogchen master, Tulku Ergin, who died some years ago. And he taught very often his students to practice the recognition of the nature of mind, that is the mind empty, aware, free of clinging, and free of 
craving. Practice the recognition of this mind short moments many times. Now, so that's a very interesting instruction. We don't have to see it as some far-off goal, and we don't have to see it as some state that somehow we have to attain and hold. Rather, we're practicing short moments many times. Well, that seems quite doable. So this can be the framework (coughs) of understanding our entire practice. When we explore the meaning of the Buddha's declaration in our own experience, we can really see how craving, the force of craving, obscures the natural openness, the natural ease, the natural clarity of mind. And how in moments free of craving, we actually can taste moments of freedom, moments of happiness. So just as a simple experiment in your practice, if by chance, tonight or tomorrow sometime, you find some desire arising in the mind, maybe you'll have to wait a few weeks, but (laughs) whenever the next time a desire arises, and you can remember this suggestion, First, recognize, oh, there's a desire, there's a wanting, there's a craving in the mind. And just pay attention to what it feels like. What's it like? What's the experience? What's the nature of the mind filled with wanting or filled with craving? And then at a certain point, as with everything else, there'll be wanting, craving, craving, you know, whatever, or whatever, and then at a certain moment it will disappear. Watch that moment when it goes away and see how that feels. To me, that's a very interesting exploration because even though we may get seduced by a certain pleasure of the wanting, you know, of anticipation, and it kind of fills us maybe even with a certain kind of happiness, you know, as we contemplate in the wanting and getting what we want. And but then when you notice what it feels like when the craving goes away, don't believe what I'm going to say. You need to check it out for yourself. But my experience has been that it's this feeling of a huge relief. It's like, letting, it's like being let out of the grip of something. You know, being in the grip of craving and then it ends. <sighs> And we again can taste that quality of freedom, that taste of freedom, and of a deeper kind of happiness. So check it out, you know, and, and really begin to explore for yourself how this is working. So tonight I'd like to explore in a little more detail the nature of craving which is a very powerful force. This is not an insignificant force in our minds or in our lives. The Buddha talked of craving as being that force which keeps the whole wheel of samsara, the whole wheel of conditioned existence, rolling along. So this is a powerful energy in our lives. 
we really need to understand it. We need to look at it very carefully. We can look at how it manifests in our lives and some of the different skillful means that different traditions use to work with it. You know, to free ourselves to come to the end of craving. So what is it and how do we experience it? Craving is a translation of the Pali word tanha. And tanha is described as thirst or the fever of unsatisfied longing. You know, so can you get those words for me are quite powerful. You know, the, the feeling of thirst is a powerful wanting. You know, when we're really th- thirsty or thirsting, or the fever, the burning, you know, of unsatisfied longing gives us a sense of the compelling force of craving. As I say, this is not an insignificant little thing. This is powerfully conditioned in us. This thirst, or fever of longing, tanha, is just the opposite of peace. You know, when we understand the nature of craving, we can see that, yes, the end of craving does bring us to a place of peace. So just one kind of word of clarification in terms of use of language. Often we use the word craving and desire synonymously. But it can be a little confusing because in English, desire has several different meanings. And so we need to really be clear of uh, how we're using it. So sometimes we say the word desire and we mean craving. You know, we mean that thirst or something. Sometimes desire refers just to the simple need of basic fulfillment, of you know, basic needs of living. You know, we have a desire for food or water or shelter or clothing, and it's not so much that craving based in greed. It's just a fulfillment of basic need. Sometimes the word desire means a motivation to do something. I have a desire to become enlightened. Again, that's not associated with greed. That really can be a very wholesome mind state. In the context of tonight's talk, when I use the word desire, it will be in its meaning of craving. Okay, so I'm using it in this specific meaning, but remember that desire can also mean different things. The Buddha pointed out in his teaching on the Four Noble Truths that craving, tanha, is the cause of suffering. Now, the first noble truth is the truth of suffering. The second noble truth is its cause, which is craving. The third noble truth is the end of suffering, which is the end of craving. And the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path, the way to it. So when he talked about craving as being the cause of suffering, he pointed us to three areas where craving manifests. And the first is the one that is most obvious and the one we're most familiar with. 
craving for sense pleasures. And here the mind is included as the sixth sense. I mean, we're all familiar with this desire or craving for sense pleasures. You know, we can see it arise within us with a whole range of intensities and frequencies. In an extreme way, this kind of craving can become an obsessive desire, you know, in our lives, an addictive craving for food or drugs or alcohol or sex or power or money, or, you know, where the craving is really addictive and is a driving, compelling force in our lives. In so many ways, our culture just reinforces this kind of craving. Now, how many email spams do you get with, increase your desire, and then, that's a good idea. (laughs) You know... (laughs) It's like, okay. <laughs> I just saw an ad, a, news, a magazine ad. Instant gratification just got faster. <laughs> Shopvogue.com. <laughs> yeah, so this is what we're being fed all the time. Desire is good. Make it stronger. Make it more intense. So sometimes desire can be this real obsessive craving, you know, addictive craving. Sometimes it might just be passing thoughts of the wanting mind. But when we watch it, we can see that even, you know, just kind of the normal thoughts we have, if we're watching the effect of those desires we can see how it pulls us out of the natural open ease of awareness. And I had this experience, it was quite vivid and very ordinary in a way. A couple of times when I was down in New York City and visiting and just walking around Midtown, you know, all the fantastic stores. And So one time I was there and my mind was just in this kind of desirous mode you know, and just kind of window shopping, but looking, oh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like everything looked interesting, <laughs> you know, oh, could I get that, or could I get that, and it was kind of fun, <laughs> you know, I was, I was more or less enjoying myself, but then a few weeks later, I was down there, and still in the same area, and I was walking along the street, and I just happened to be in a mind space of non-wanting, so I was walking by, seeing the same stores, same things in the stores, and I remarked to myself the difference in my experience. You know, I was just walking, and it felt so easeful compared to where I'd been just a few weeks before when the mind was kind of looking and wanting. So we need to see for ourselves, you know, even in these very ordinary, ordinary circumstances of our lives, we really want to investigate and explore how craving is working, how desire is working. Because it actually limits our freedom. It takes us out of the natural ease of mind. One other characteristic of craving that has struck me very often, it's a little humiliating (laughs) to see how it works. 
And that is, it's unbelievable persistence. And so we could have, and I've noticed this, you know, both on retreat and off, but particularly on retreat where I'm kind of trying to practice renunciation at times. <laughs> you know, so the thought will come, oh, a cup of tea, and I'll see the thought. And I'll say, no, I don't need it. And like seven and a half seconds later, <laughs> oh, a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't need it. Third time, fourth time, fifth time, eighth time I go for it. <laughs> yeah, and it's like just this little desire. It's not some huge thing, but it's just waiting <laughs> for an unguarded moment. And I've just come to appreciate how sneaky it is. You know, often these different patterns of craving, of wanting in the mind, they're so familiar to us. They're just they're kind of the ordinary stuff of our lives. They're so much a part of who we take ourselves to be that they remain invisible. You know, we don't even see them unless we're really trying to pay attention. So we need to bring the power of mindfulness and awareness to them. Being on retreat is very conducive to looking at and exploring how desire, how craving plays itself out, both in our minds here on retreat and the same patterns that play out in our lives. I'll just mention a few of the ways that I'm sure you have already seen but would be worth continuing to look at carefully. Not uncommon for craving in the mind of yogis to take the form of just sitting and indulging in pleasant fantasies. You know, they might be sexual fantasies, they might be food fantasies, The hour goes quickly. <laughs> I'm really familiar with these. <laughs> you know, it's kind of nice. We're just sitting and we're just lost in these fantasies. And the hour goes quickly and our body doesn't hurt particularly. Might be fantasies for balmy weather. <laughs> I was sitting on retreat just, th- just this last February at my house. And for those of you around here anyway... It was an incredibly cold and icy month. I mean, it was very intense weather. And I had friends who had gone down to spend the month in retreat in the Caribbean. (laughs) So I was walking up my driveway doing walking meditation, totally freezing. The the driveway was all ice, you know, so I was really having... And I'd have this thought, (laughs) oh, the Caribbean would be so nice. But one of the great beauties of sitting in New England in the winter, and I really do love it, is because it's impossible to ignore the weather. It's so intense that it demands attention. You know, so even though that thought would come, (laughs) the freezing cold air on my face really brought me back quite quickly. So really look to see, is the mind indulging in fantasies of whatever kind? 
What's interesting to observe is how often we can get caught in them again and again, even when they, we know they don't lead any place. They're not going any place. And so a note that I have used at times when I find my mind seduced by that craving, by that desire, as soon as I see it arise in my mind, I'll make the note dead end. It's a dead end. You know, and it's better to have that sign at the beginning of the road <laughs> rather than at the end <laughs> because you'll save yourself the whole useless journey. <laughs> More subtly, we experience desire or craving very often in practice as a kind of expectation or wanting of some new experience, some different experience, for something better to be happening, you know, for some great meditative experience. The problem is that expectation in the mind, which is a form of craving, expectation always brings agitation. You know, it's not helpful in any way. It locks us into the cycle of hope and fear. When we're identified with expectation, there's the hope that we'll get something, the fear that we want, and it's a very discombobulating state of mind. It does not conducive to natural ease and openness. Now, the expecting mind is very seductive in some of the ways I talked about with doubt and aversion. Because we can confuse expectation with aspiration. Now, oh, I have this aspiration for this great meditative state, and this is why I'm here. And it's, but it's not really aspiration. It's just wanting. <laughs> you know, it's just. And so to see the difference, and in the talk, you know that several. Uh, my colleagues have given on bodhicitta, you know, a beautiful aspiration, a noble aspiration. You know, may our practice, may our whole lives be for the welfare and benefit of all beings. So this is, this is a great noble aspiration. really want to see very clearly that we can hold that aspiration. That has nothing to do with expectation. In fact, expectation will only hinder the process. We fulfill the aspiration, even this huge one, this really noble one, we fulfill it by letting go into the wisdom mind of not clinging, not by a grasping mind. So we want to see the difference between expectation and aspiration and not be fooled. Expectation and practice also feeds the comparing mind. And I've seen this so often, and I'm sure you have. Have you ever gotten into the space of competitive sitting? You know, where we're just comparing ourselves with other yogis, for better or for worse. You know, as if somehow we're all in a race to awakening. You know, and we're comparing ourselves. Well, they're ahead of me, they're behind me. They're, 
it's ridiculous. <laughs> and yet it happens. If we get into that kind of comparing mind, which is a kind of craving, you know, craving for result and then comparing ourselves, we just get caught up either in self-judgment of how bad we are or pride about how great we are. You know, and it just confuses the whole practice. One, in one retreat, when Upandita first came here, I was really caught up in this. You know, it, was a very, it was a very charged retreat. It was Upandita's first visit. Everybody wanted to really do as well as they could, whatever that means. You know, and of course, my mind was, oh, they look like they're really doing well. Uh, they're so sloppy. Yeah, and I was just going back and forth, and I was driving myself a little nuts. And I was mostly on the self-judging side of the equation. And then it was springtime, and the flowers were just starting to come up. You know, the tulips were just starting to come up out of the ground. And I happened to be walking outside, and I saw that some of the tulips were already up and open and flowered. And some were just up but not opened. And some were just poking through the ground. And somehow it just it just put my mind at ease. You know, every one of them would follow its own law, unfold in its own time. And that's really a beautiful way to practice. It's not about comparing and it's not a race. It's just our own flowering. You know, and we do our work and the flowering happens. Okay, so there are all these kinds of desire and craving and expectation. Somewhat ironically, even though we invest so much in desire in terms of it being a vehicle for our happiness, it doesn't deliver on its promise. You know? And so we have to see that. It promise us, promises us happiness. You know, oh, yeah, fulfill the desire and you'll be happy. Fulfill this, you'll be happy. Do this, you'll be happy. And, you know, happiness does come for a time because most of our desires have to do with pleasant feelings. And a good part of the time we actually do experience some pleasant feelings as the result. What's the problem? The problem is, as you well know, the pleasant feelings don't last. You know, they're there for a time and they're enjoyable for when they're there and then they're gone. And so then we have to do it again and again and again and again. And it's a never-ending, never-completed cycle. It's like trying to quench one's thirst by drinking salt water. You know, the more we drink, the thirstier we get. It does not bring completion. So even though we still frequently get caught up in these cravings, you all know this. You know that that is not really the path to happiness. Because if you thought it were, you would be in the Caribbean now. (laughs) But somehow you've chosen to be here. So there's part of you that knows this. 
it's helpful to really see it very clearly so we can bring this understanding into our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we should never enjoy ourselves. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean that we sh- shouldn't enjoy the pleasant experiences, pleasant feelings that come along. It's just that we need to understand deeply, really deeply, the very transitory nature of these pleasant feelings. How much of our lives, how much of our energy do we want to invest in this endless pursuit? You know, even as we enjoy these things as they come, do we really want to invest our life energy in just the pursuit of endlessly impermanent pleasant feelings? It does not bring the completion that we're looking for. And Dharma practice opens us opens us to the possibility of a much deeper, much deeper kind of happiness in our lives. Okay, so this is the first kind of craving, craving for sense pleasures. We would have talked to the second kind of craving, which goes even deeper, and that he called the craving for becoming. Traditionally, it includes craving for becoming in other lives and in other realms and you know in the heaven realms and we may or may not believe that but for us there's a more immediate way of experiencing this craving for becoming and it's quite subtle but very clearly observable in our practice i'll just give a few examples we can see it in the planning mind have you had any plans <laughs> over the last six, seven days? You know, where we imagine ourselves in some future situation. Notice how often we get lost in the mind, mind creations of a future self. I'll do that. I'll go there. I'll be this. And it's all creations of our mind. We're just sitting here. But that's the craving for becoming. The Buddha gave some very specific and incisive instructions here. These are instructions that liberate the mind, so we should really take them in. He said, not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future. Just those two things. Think of what your life would be. What a relief. Not reviving the past, not hoping to be in the future, instead with insight see each arising state, not craving after past experiences, not setting one's heart on future ones, not bound up with desire and craving. You just even get a moment's sense of the tremendous ease of that. Just letting go of the past, letting go of the future, letting go of the present. On a more momentary level, we can see this craving for becoming in the unfolding process itself. And this is something I've noticed a lot in my practice and in talking 
with all of you and yogis over many years, have you found yourself many times where with an experience, simple, a breath, a sensation, but we're with it leaning into the next. It's like we're watching this breath in order for the next breath to come. We're with this sensation in order for it to open. We're with this emotion in order for it to clear. Right? This tendency of the mind to lean into the process is really craving for becoming. It's like we're tying ourselves to some future unfolding instead of being able to settle back and simply be with each experience exactly as it is in the moment. This is from Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche, and the article was Dzogchen Practice in Daily Life. If we have interesting experiences, either during or after meditation, we should avoid making anything special of them. To spend time thinking about experiences is simply a distraction. We should not attempt to re-experience them, because to do so only serves to distort the natural spontaneity of mind. All phenomena are completely new and fresh, absolutely unique, and entirely free from all concepts of past, present, and future. All phenomena. And this is just a very simple phenomena of experience. All phenomena are completely new and fresh, absolutely unique, and entirely free from all concepts of past, present, and future. They are experienced in timelessness. Okay, desire for sense pleasures, craving for sense pleasures, craving for becoming. The third kind of craving won't speak much of, but it has a, it has a subtle way of influencing the mind. It's called desire for non-existence, or craving for non-existence. Life is so bad, if only I could not be. You know. And I actually had one little experience of this on that first Upandita retreat, which was very intense, Parts of it were very, very difficult. I was living, my room was downstairs. I don't think those rooms are even there anymore. There were rooms at the back of the lower walking room. So it was kind of, you know, a little dungeon-like. I was having a really hard time, you know, this one section of the retreat. And then I started hearing planes go overhead. And the thought that, and this was back in 84, the thought that went through my mind is, was, oh, I hope they're Russian planes and I drop some bombs so I can get out of here. <laughs> I wasn't very compassionate for my fellow yogis, but <laughs> just a way to get out. <laughs> That's craving for non-becoming, <laughs> craving for non-existence. Okay. So the question for us, given all the ways craving manifests in the mind, sometimes obvious, sometimes subtle, 
is how can we experience the mind free of craving? Because as the Buddha said, that is the nature of the free mind. Here is where we can see the different traditions converge in their understanding of what frees the mind. And there are many methods, many vocabularies, many metaphysics, but there's one essential taste of freedom. There's a great Tibetan teacher, uh, I think it was around the turn of the 20th century, the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, his name was Patril Rinpoche. And Patril was, uh, he didn't belong to any monastery. He was like this old vagabond monk who was always dressed in rags and wandering around to, to bed. But he was supposed to have this amazing level of realization. You know, and often people wouldn't even recognize him because he looked so decrepit. And he wrote this one piece. It's called Advice from Me to Myself. Okay, so he's talking to himself. Uh, and this is this is in some way a classical Tibetan form. These great these great enlightened beings will do that as a teaching tool. Uh, so I'll read uh, just a few lines from Patrol. Listen up, old bad karma Patrol. <laughs> you dweller in distraction. For ages now you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around about, carrying a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. You beat your little Damaru drum. That's a Tibetan drum. You beat your little Damaru drum. Ting, ting. And your audience thinks it's charming to hear. You're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. You're making your little symbols go cling, cling, without keeping the ultimate purpose in mind. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. (laughs) Even though you don't know how to practice, Just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. So I really like that. (laughs) When you read the whole thing, he goes on and on, poking holes at all the things we do, you know, to distract ourselves. But the real point underneath all the methods, all the methodologies, all the systems, the real point. Just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. So how do we let go? It's not complicated. The instruction is very simple. 
but given the strength of craving. Now, how powerful a force that in, is in our mind. How can we let go of everything? And again, the different traditions give us different methods. In Vipassana practice, traditional Vipassana, craving is deconditioned by an increasingly refined perception of change, of impermanence, that whatever is arising is also passing away. And we just observe this you know, over and over again, and we see it more and more clearly. Inside the subatomic world, we find evidence of an impermanence that is so impermanent, it makes our ordinary reality seem frozen in time. Way down inside of everything, where the quarks are doing a little line dance inside of an electron, events are occurring in increments far shorter than the blink of an eye, considered to be a tenth of a second. In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named autoseconds, which is a millionth of a trillionth of a second. Takes an electron about one attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be considered a long nap. Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second. Before you can even blink, zepto, it's gone. I think at some point the physicists realized they had entered a Marx Brothers routine where the jokes are coming so fast you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started measuring things changing even faster in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yoktosecond. <laughs> Ato, zepto, yokto. <laughs> all you can do is smile and let go. Things are changing very rapidly. And as our practice deepens, we may not get to yoktoseconds, but through the refinement of our practice, we really can begin to perceive the incredible rapidity of change of the mind, of the body, of all the processes of consciousness itself. We can also have powerful moments of letting go through seeing impermanence on more ordinary levels. One of the things I love about New England and walking through the woods, you know, you see all these old stone walls and the stone foundations of old houses. And you just think of all the, first of the amazing amount of work that went into it, and just all the people's lives, which for them were as compelling and as vivid as our own is to us. And yet, where are all those stories now? Where are all those people now? There's one teaching which is a teaching of a very fierce compassion. And I want to mention it to you. Most of you, or many of you, may have known of our teacher Deepama, this very wonderful, extraordinary woman, a teacher, highly accomplished, high stages of realization in all domains of Dharma. I mean, she was an extraordinary being, had a very suffering-filled life until she began her practice. She was married young, as was the custom. Two of her three children died young. 
Her husband died. She was left with one daughter. And she said that she was so filled with grief, she was bedridden for five years. And she thought she was going to die from the grief of it. Um, And then somebody suggested she go to a monastery. She was living in Burma at the time. And then very quickly, all her paramis kicked in, and she accomplished uh, amazing levels of realization. She had a very deep understanding of suffering. So this is a teaching on impermanence that Deepa Ma was giving to a student of hers when she was back in Calcutta. And I like it because it's very fierce and totally compassionate. So this is the story in the book of stories about Deepa Ma. There's a book called Deepa Ma, you know, and a collection of stories and her teachings. It's about a woman named uh, Sudipti. So this is Sudipti telling the story, which is related in the book. She said, When my son died in 1984, Deepa Ma shocked me with her words. It was a hard teaching. I have not forgotten. Today your son has gone from this world. Why are you shocked? Everything is impermanent. Your life is impermanent. Your husband is impermanent. Your son is impermanent. Your money is impermanent. Your building is impermanent. Everything is impermanent. There is nothing that is permanent. When you are alive, you might think, this is my daughter, this is my husband, this is my property, this is my building, this car belongs to me. But when you are dead, nothing is yours. Sudipti, you think you are a serious meditator, but you must really learn that everything is impermanent. That's pretty striking to somebody whose son had just died. But this is not coming from some theoretical, philosophic place. This was coming from Deepama's heart, who had been through the same thing and come out into a place of realization, awakening. You know, and it just, for me, is so powerful because if we are serious about liberating the heart, liberating the mind, if we're not just doing this as a hobby, you know, but this... This is the passion of our lives, to be free. We need to realize impermanence on that level. There is nothing that is permanent. When we see that, when we really can understand it deeply, it is a powerful deconditioning of craving and clinging. So we want to practice seeing it in our lives. Sometimes in easy, easy ways, easy situations, sometimes in very difficult situations. But that is the truth of things. This is not something that's made up and it's not a philosophic statement. It's there for us to see and it's so obvious. But we need to be willing to look. On all of these levels, whether it's the kind of momentary level of change that we can see you know, in our meditation, or walking through the woods, or circumstances of life, on whatever level we look and we practice acknowledging, recognizing, seeing the changing, impermanent nature that nothing is lasting, 
and knowing it not intellectually, but seeing it directly for ourselves, the more we see it, the more we're able to let go. To follow Patril Rinpoche's advice, let go of everything, let go of everything. Don't hold on. And just to give you a sense of the freedom that comes from that, you know, because we hear it and it may sound, oh my God, (laughs) you know, this is just too much. But it's a letting go into freedom. This is this is a f- story, a few lines from uh, an abbess of a Japanese nunnery. Uh, and it's a story from a book called Women of the Way, discovering 2,500 years of Buddhist wisdom by Sally Teasdale. Teasdale. And the, the, the abbess, the name of the abbess was Teijitsu, who had a great awakening. So this is Teijitsu. She saw that arising's experience is arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that the knowing of them arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning and she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. You know, and that's I read that, and it was just such a beautiful expression of the freedom when we open the clenched fist of our minds. She opened the clenched fist of her mind, let go, and fell into the midst of everything. So in Vipassana, there's really that emphasis on freedom through seeing the impermanence on all levels and letting go. In Dzogchen and some Zen traditions, we can experience and touch the mind free of craving through the direct recognition of the empty, aware nature of the mind itself. So that's another method, another tool where we're, we're looking directly at the mind, the empty nature of mind that is already free from craving. The experience, this is from uh, Zigar Kongchul, a Tibetan teacher, the experience of emptiness is not found outside the world of ordinary appearances, as many people mistakenly assume. In truth, we experience emptiness when the mind is free of grasping at appearance. It's the same teaching. (laughs) free of grasping, and then we look at the nature of mind. So how do we look? How do we touch it? How do we recognize this empty, aware nature? One of the ways Tulko Ergin would teach you know, when he was 
kind of pointing out to students, part of that process was he would tell his students, look for your mind. Just look for it and tell me what you find. And the students would come back and say all kinds of fantastic, you know, oh, it's this little golden ball that I saw, or it's, you know, this or that, and he would just send them back, look again. (laughs) And he would say, can you see it? Can you taste it? Can you touch it? And then he would say, when you look for the mind and you can't find it, we look for the mind, as we've been suggesting, you know, at different times during the week in the guided meditations, you know, open, you know, to the sounds, the sensations, and the open space of mind, then look at the mind. It's open, empty, invisible, can't be found. Right here is the moment of recognition when you see that it can't be found, when you're looking for it. And again, this is not thinking about it. You're, you're actually doing this. You know, we're looking at the mind, for the mind. And there's nothing to find. That's the moment of recognition. The not finding is the finding. So pay attention. Pay attention to the experience, to the moment's experience when you can't find it. You look for the mind. Just now, I mean, the sounds are very happily arising. The sounds are being known. By what? Okay, look for what's knowing the sound. <laughs> it's not acting on cue. <laughs> so pay attention as you and you can pl- you can play with this. You can work with this in your practice with whatever's arising. It's being known. What's knowing it? Known by what? You look. There's nothing to find. What's that moment of not finding? This was the essence of a very uh, important uh, exchange between Bodhidharma, you know, the person who brought Buddhism from India to China, and the first of his disciples, and his name was Hueka. And the story is that Bodhidharma was sitting in his cave, you know, for seven years, looking at the back wall, not moving or something. And Hueka was really suffering in his life and looking and searching and seeking. And he came to hear Bodhidharma, he came to the cave. Bodhidharma was ignoring him. Finally, Bodhidharma comes out and says, you know, okay, what do you want? So Hueka says, please teach me the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas. Bodhidharma says, the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas cannot be obtained from someone else. Hueka, my mind is distressed. 
please pacify it with your teaching. Okay, that's us. You know, we come to my, our minds are distressed. Please pacify it with your teaching. Bodhidharma, present me your mind and I will pacify it. Hueka, I've searched for my mind, but I can't find it. Bodhidharma, there, I've pacified it. (laughs) It's actually very profound. You know, right there, I mean, we could get enlightened with this. You know, we look, I've looked for my mind everywhere. I can't find it. In the not finding, it is already pacified. So just play with this. You know, really look for yourself, investigate for yourself. When I came upon this, I was on retreat, you know, and I read this, and somehow it just, you know, times different things just resonate so clearly. And it was so interesting, while I was on retreat, sometimes I would just be doing walking meditation or in the sitting, and that phrase would come to mind, already pacified. And it was amazing, just in saying the phrase, reminding myself of the unfindability of the mind, I could feel the mind relax back from a wanting in my practice that I didn't even know was there. You know, we can just get into these kinds of craving that's kind of pulling us out of the moment in such subtle ways, and then, oh, already pacified. So in all of these ways, you know, whether it's through the recognition the direct perception of impermanence and we let go, whether it's through looking for your mind and it can't be found, the non-findability, we come to the end of craving. The recognition that it's already pacified. All of these ways, we practice with them you know, they can inspire us in the same way as the Buddha's song of enlightenment. You know, realized is the unconditioned, achieved is the end of craving. And we can do it in short moments many times. That's our practice. So I would just like to close with a teaching by Zigar Kongtrul, a Tibetan teacher. He said, the potential for realization is universal and present for all of us. True benefit will come from your own efforts and realization. For your efforts to bring benefit, you must take your life into your own hands and examine your mind and experience. From this point of view, nobody could be kinder to you than yourself. Nobody could have a greater effect on you or actually do more for you than yourself. The Buddha said, I have shown you the path of liberation. Now liberation depends on you. This is really true. 
If you don't take your life into your own hands, not even the Buddhas can make a difference. It's up to you. This is a great reminder to us all. Let's sit for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.